Rosary Hall, speaking for the sisters and staff of Rosary Hall, for Mr. Farrell Gallagher and his large committee, it is my privilege to welcome you here to this annual meeting. This is the fifth annual anniversary meeting of Rosary Hall. It was only five years ago, around this time of the year, the Sisters of Charity of St. Augustine turned over that large wing on the second floor of St. Vincent's Charity Hospital to this work. Now, they named it Rosary Hall Solarium, and RHS, also the initials of the co-founder, Dr. Robert H. Smith, the late Dr. Smith, and also signifying the joint effort of the Sisters, a Catholic religious organization, and AA, a strictly non-sectarian organization, the two of them joining forces to do something for the alcoholic. This was not the Sisters' first attempt at help to AA. Since 1939, Sister Ignatia, Dr. Bob at Akron, and in their other hospitals, they'd always tried to help. But this was the most ambitious program of any general hospital in the history of the country. How well it succeeded, five years, and they've had 5,000 patients who have gone through there. How many of them have arrested, and I use the verb advisedly, their problem? Only the Lord knows. But people close to Rosary Hall are of the opinion that three out of four of them have achieved a lasting sobriety. And it is this achievement that we honor each year. These annual meetings also serve to remind the graduates of Rosary Hall of the purpose for which they were hospitalized. And these annual meetings also tend to remind all of us of the important part Rosary Hall is playing in the development of this organization which the co-founder himself here recently, in the very title of his new book, refers to as a new organization that has just come of age. For our speaker today, we have again reached into the New York area. We have a gentleman, an attorney by profession, more important here this afternoon, AAYs, extremely active in New York and has served for a number of years on the editorial board of the Grapevine. I'm pleased to present Mr. Thomas of New York City. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. <laughs> Sister Ignatia and friends of Rosary Hall, as your chairman has said, my name is Tom and I'm an alcoholic. I'm especially happy to be here uh, at this particular anniversary because, as I always say, there's nothing like a fifth. <laughs> now, I, I am associated with the grapevine, but unfortunately I am not there in an editorial capacity. Uh, I'm the, I happen to be the vice president of the corporation that uh, 
puts out the magazine, and uh, I, I'm not quite sure what my functions are. Uh, I, I read the magazine uh, rather irreligiously, and that's about all they ask me to do. I, I, I want to repeat that I'm not there in an editorial capacity, but I would like to point out what I think is a mistake in this little throwaway that was handed out in Cleveland, an invitation to Rosary Hall, and it says, Thomas O., prominent New York attorney. The word prominent should be stricken and replaced by the word notorious. <laughs> Some of you rem may remember Senator Robert La Follette, the, the senior. He was from the state of Wisconsin, and uh, uh, he was a past master at the filibuster. He was a great talker. And on one occasion, when he filibustered against a bill he didn't like, uh, people were impressed by the length of time that he stayed on his feet. And a newspaper man said to him, Senator LaFollette, how long can you talk? And he said, well, do you mean with notes or without notes? And the uh, reporter was rather surprised, and he says, why, what difference does it make? He said, well, with notes I can talk for two weeks. Without notes, I can talk indefinitely. And uh, I didn't want to talk for either two weeks or indefinitely, and so I made some notes. And I hope you don't mind if occasionally I, I look at them. Uh, I, I used to spend a little time in qualifying myself as an alcoholic, but uh, because of an experience I had in New York, it, it seems to me no longer necessary. I had to go to uh, uh, do some business near the municipal building in New York, and uh, I got myself all dressed up. I had a, a haircut and a shave, and it was the winter time, and I had a, uh, a black Chesterfield coat and a Hamburg hat. And I, I really thought I looked quite, uh, quite sharp, you know. And I, I got through this business that I had to attend to sooner than I thought, and uh, I had some time to kill. I remembered a friend of mine had just been made a deputy commissioner of parole in the state of New York. And I went around to see him. And I, I went up to the eighth floor where his office was located. A receptionist there looked me over very carefully. He saw the haircut and the shave and the, the Hamburg and the Chesterfield. And he looked at me right in the eye and he said, are you on parole? <laughs> I, I figure once a bum, always a bum, and there isn't much you can do about it. And that reminded me of an experience I had when I was a comparatively young man. Uh, I happened to be in Ireland for the summer, and I was spending, I was going to spend a little time in the, in the vicinity of the lakes of Killarney. And I, I had a room in a small hotel there called the Kenmare Arms. A, uh, a bellboy took me up to my room. It was just over the bar. And uh, as he let, let down my bags, he said, if you want a bottle of whiskey, stamp on the floor once, and I'll bring it right up. I thought this was kind of a primitive method of communication, and so I said, well, suppose I want something else. And he said to me, glory be to God, man, what else would you want? <laughs> and I, I, I had no answer, and uh, so I, I don't think I'm going to bother with any great qualification. 
But every time there is an anniversary, uh, I think our tendency is to uh, remember when we first came into AA and remember about our early days. Uh, I came into AA in a uh, in what was known as the Flushing Group of Alcoholics Anonymous. It was a small group of very hard-boiled uh, ladies and gentlemen, and each one of them uh, felt that he knew all there was to know about alcoholism, uh, and each one of them felt that uh, he knew all there was to know about the AA program. And uh, each one of them gave you the impression that if he had had a day off, he could have written the 12 steps and the traditions without too much trouble. It was a, a uh, group in which you, you really had to get sober or, or uh, uh, you had a rough time of it. And uh, on, on one occasion, I was selected with some fellows to go to an outlying district uh, to, uh, to lead a meeting. And this, this flushing group was called, among the other groups, it was called the confusion group of AA because we always did everything wrong. We either had two groups at a meeting or we had two teams at a meeting or we didn't have anybody. And we went way out in the country to this uh, uh, small group which was meeting in a, a New England-type congregational church. And in those days, we had four speakers. And we uh, uh, left from Flushing, and before we even left the town, we lost the speaker. He didn't show up, and uh, they told me to call up his house. And they selected me for this very important job because I was the only one who had a nickel. And I, I called up the house, and uh, this fellow hadn't been in AA very long. His wife was still like a district attorney. Every time you talk, she asked you a whole bunch of questions. So she asked me what I wanted Eddie for. And so I said he was going to speak in Smithtown with us. And she said, he spoke in Smithtown last night. So I figured, well, I didn't know the fellow very well, and I didn't know what he might have been doing last night, so I just hung up. And uh, I didn't want to make any statement that get him in, 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 in any more trouble. So I, uh, I joined my friends, and we drove out to Smithtown. And we decided that each one of us, how long each person would speak. You know, the, the uh, leader was going to speak 15 minutes. The first speaker was going to speak uh, 15 minutes. The third speaker was going to speak 10 minutes. We're going to give a little time to the secretary. And then the final speaker was going to speak 10 minutes. And uh, this was fine. We arrived there, and the uh, uh, leader of the meeting uh, forgot about the other speakers, and he talked for 30 minutes. And the first speaker was enraged at this because he didn't believe a word the leader said. So when he was called on, he jumped to his feet like a raging tiger. And he spoke for 30 minutes, refuting everything that the first speaker had said. Uh, now it was uh, even, no score by anybody. And then the, uh, our lost speaker appeared. And he spoke for 30 minutes. He didn't know that anybody was there at all, so he spoke for 30 minutes. Then they called on me to wind up the meeting. I talked for uh, 15 or 20 minutes, I suppose. And at the back of the room, I saw a little worried-looking man. And I said, ah, he's the new, the newcomer. And I talked right to him. At the end of the meeting, we gravitated toward each other. And I, I said to him, don't you worry about any problem you got. 
you just keep coming to these meetings. He said, I'm going to come as often as they let me. I'm the new minister here. <laughs> now, when I, when I first came into AA, uh, I, I didn't think I had a great deal of trouble about drink. Uh, I was, I think, badly mixed up, and I thought the trouble I had had to do with my family rather than anything else. Uh, my mother-in-law had come to live with us. It's a temporary arrangement and has been for the last 14 years. <laughs> and she, she came with us uh, so that my wife could get a job. Uh, my brother was uh, uh, paying our room rent and my sister was feeding and clothing the children. Now, I was very indignant with, with my wife. To think of going to work, this showed a lack of confidence in me, and I resented it very much. Well, the, my, my house wasn't a very, in a very happy condition uh, because of the fact that I was drinking to excess. I wasn't bringing home a great deal of money, and uh, uh, when I did bring home money, I think I wasn't overly generous with it. I didn't get along well with my mother-in-law. I didn't get along very well with my wife. Uh, I didn't get along very well with my children. I thought they were very badly brought up. I thought they had no respect for their father at all. Uh, they were noisy. I'd be trying to get over a hangover, and they'd drop Band-Aids on the floor. And, and uh, all sorts of things bothered me. Uh, I, I wouldn't say that I've completely got control of myself even now, although I, I think I've made some improvement. Uh, some years ago, great changes took place in my house. I discovered that instead of uh, having Colino's toothpaste, which we had always used, my, my wife had bought in some Squibbs toothpaste. And this was uh, revolutionary. I hadn't been consulted about it. And I was very annoyed, and I uh, was prepared to stalk out of the bathroom to indicate what I felt about it. And then I, I thought things over, and AA was beginning to take a hold. And I said to myself, what the dickens is eating you? You've only got ten feet left anyway. <laughs> now... I've got my falsy sense then, of course, you know, uh, uh, part of, uh, of AA, I suppose. Uh, the, uh, well, I, I, I wasn't happy at home, and they weren't happy to have me around. And the result was that things got unbearable, uh, and I ran away from home at the age of 45. <laughs> I, I I was a sport about it, I think. I had eight dollars. Uh, I kept five, and I gave three dollars to my wife, one for her, one for each of the two kids. My mother-in-law was on her own. <laughs> and I, I didn't stay away from home very long. I found that I I had even more trouble away than I had at home. 
this, I think, indicates a disintegration in in the family life. I was I was of no benefit to myself. I was of no use to my family at all. I was not a a father and not a husband in any sense of the word. Now, along with this disintegration of my family life, went a disintegration in my personality. I think, uh, as I was growing up, I was a, a rather a carefree sort of of fellow. I could get along with people quite well, but as I drank to excess, I found it increasingly difficult uh, to get along with people. Uh, I considered myself a uh, a cut above the average fellow. I had more formal education than I had the ability to understand. I know that now. I didn't at the time. Uh, and I, I thought I was a very thoughtful man. I realize now that, for me, uh, thought was a few quiet moments in which I rearranged my prejudices. I, I felt that there were two sides to any problem, uh, my side and the wrong side. And I was perfectly willing to give people the, the benefit of my superior knowledge on any subject which might be under discussion. I was dissatisfied with present-day society, of course, I suppose because I, I had no place in it. And I was the sort of fellow who advocated great social changes. I was a great reformer. I was the sort of fellow two drinks I wanted to change the world, two pints and I wouldn't change my shirt. <laughs> now, I, I was a, a frustrated man, too. Nobody paid attention to me, and uh, uh, that threw me more in upon my own personality and upon my own resources. And then, finally, there was a disintegration in my, in my business life. As the chairman said, I am a lawyer, and uh, I had as a partner a fellow who was, like myself, both an alcoholic and a horse player. Now, two fellows with those four uh, vices can't do very well from a business point of view. Uh, we should have done very well because, uh, well, my father was a highly successful lawyer, and my brother is a judge, and his brother was a district attorney in a neighboring county, and uh, uh, we had a great deal of promise, it seems to me. But because of the fact that we, we both drank to excess, and because we played the races, the only way you can play them, that is to excess, uh, we, we didn't do well. We started out with a suite of offices and a secretary and filing cabinets and telephones and all, all the rest of it, and we lost the office. And then we had a room in another fellow's office, and we lost the room. And then we had desks in a, another fellow's room, and we lost the desks. And then we had drawer space in a third fellow's desk, and we lost this space, too. We ended up practicing law from a telephone booth in a local saloon. We had almost 24 hours phone service, uh, but m many of the calls that came to us uh, were not of any great importance. Now, here you have, I think, what is a 
pattern of deterioration. A, uh, a man who is alienated from his family, a man who is uh, so constituted as a person that he has lost all his friends, and a man who has no business uh, that uh, keeps his mind occupied. Now, when all these troubles came on me at once, uh, I realized for the first time that I was in serious difficulty, but I didn't know what to do about it. I had been uh, brought up in a uh, in a, uh, a good uh, American Catholic home, and I had uh, grown away from my church in the same way that I had grown away from my family. Uh, I hadn't been to church in 25 years, I guess, except for uh, attendance at my father's funeral. Uh, I knew no clergyman. Uh, at all well, and I was reluctant to talk to any clergyman uh, because uh, I felt that no one understood this problem of drunkenness, and I, I thought that even if I did go and speak to a clergyman, uh, I would be a hypocrite because I had, I had thrown aside all these uh, teachings of the, the church of my ancestors and uh, I felt that there was no hope for me. I did go to see my family doctor, and uh, he was a man about my own age. He, uh, he knew, I think, as little about alcoholism as I did. Uh, I knew about a lot about its effects. Uh, he may have known a little something about its causes, but I wasn't honest with him. I didn't tell him how much I drank. I just told him that I thought I was drinking a little bit too much. He asked me what I drank, and I told him I was drinking brandy. He said, uh, this probably is, is too strong for you. You ought to be more moderate. Uh, why don't you drink sherry? And apparently his theory was that you should have a, a symbol full of sherry in the evening before your dinner, you know. Uh, and But I, I took him at his word. This was a medical prescription. Uh, I should drink sherry, and I began to drink sherry by the quart. And the, the consequence was that my condition now was much worse than it had ever been before. Uh, I was a periodic uh, drinker, and I did have uh, times of sobriety. But when I drank the sherry, I was never completely sober. You, if I drank a lot of sherry at night and in the morning I bent over to tie my shoelaces, parenthetically sometimes I didn't have to tie the shoelaces because I hadn't taken the shoes off, but if I did have to tie the shoelaces, I'd get a rush of sherry to the head and I'd be just as bad off as I was when I, I uh, uh, went to bed the night before. And then my family decided that I should go to see a psychiatrist. I knew the situation was desperate, and so I, I did go to a psychiatrist because I, I wanted to stop drinking, and I was trying to stop drinking, but I just didn't seem able to, and so I thought there must be something wrong with me mentally. Now, the psychiatrist I went to was an American man. He had an American medical degree, and then he'd gone to Vienna 
and he uh, come under the influence of the Freudian school. And uh, uh, he was interested in my subconscious, and the first thing he said to me was, tell me about your dreams. Well, I was always a, a fresh guy, a wise guy. And so I said to him, what dreams are you talking about? I'm here because I can't sleep. So, now, obviously, anybody who, uh, who adopts that attitude with a psychiatrist isn't going to get very far. Uh, this man I found uh, very sympathetic. Uh, he, he let me talk. And no one else was willing to let me talk, even at home. Uh, no one had any interest in anything I had to say. As a matter of fact, if I if I did talk very much, everybody had something to do in another room. Uh, but this psychiatrist uh, did ask me to talk, and I talked to him at some length. Uh, much of what I told him, of course, was untrue, uh, and that was because I didn't have the courage to face myself as I actually was. I went to him, I think, for about three weeks. And uh, then it came time for me to drink. Uh, I, I, I never knew why I drank, but apparently I did uh, drink in cycles. And uh, it came, as I say, it came time for me to drink. And I, I drank too much, and I went to his office. And uh, when I refused to leave, uh, because I said I had a number of things I wanted to tell him, uh, the police came, and uh, I told them a few things. Uh, which I didn't plan to tell the psychiatrist. Uh, but the, uh, the police took me out and, uh, uh, I, I gathered from their attitude that the relation of patient and client, uh, patient and doctor was over as far as my psychiatrist was concerned. I, I, uh, discovered subsequently that he was a neighbor of mine in Jackson Heights. And I, I couldn't figure him out. Every time I saw him, he was in the middle of the of the road. He was crossing the street. And I used to say to myself, this is very dangerous for that man. Uh, he's going to get hit by an automobile. It never occurred to me that he was trying to get away from me. He'd see me first, and he'd shoot across the street. And once I, after I got sober, I bumped into him face to face. He couldn't uh, evade me. And... Uh, Rather half-heartedly, he asked me how I was doing. And I, I said that I was sober. And he seemed quite surprised. And he asked me how. And uh, I told him that I was in AA. And he said that he thought he had read about it somewhere, but he, he didn't pay very much attention to it. He said he never had any great success with alcoholics. He didn't call them alcoholics. He said, I didn't have any success with you damn drunks. And uh, they said that he felt badly about me. He thought that I'm, he might get somewhere with me, but he gave me the impression that even I had let him down. And uh, so I said, well, maybe maybe uh, it was just uh, not intended to be. I, I had to get it some other way than, than uh, uh, the way you were going to, to help me. And as we parted, he said, there's one thing that I want to tell you before we leave. I said, what's that, doctor? He said, if you had kept coming to me, I would have started to drink. <laughs> and then, you see, I had 
given up on the church without giving the church any chance at all. I had not been truthful either with the doctor or with the psychiatrist. But the psychiatrist had said two things to me that were of great importance. He said, obviously, there's something wrong with your thought patterns and there's something wrong with your habit patterns. But as I say, before we got a chance to discover what was wrong in those two fields, I got drunk. But that, those ideas stuck with me for a long, long while. And I, I began to ask myself what it was wrong with my thought patterns. I didn't think too much about my habit patterns. I knew that I tended to, to get drunk, but, but I thought I got drunk because of, of something in my, in my mind. And, uh, AA was the last chance for me, as I look back on it now. Uh, but when I came into AA, I was not in a receptive state of mind. Uh, I was hostile, and I was resentful. And I, I went to the clubhouse on 41st Street in Manhattan. And I talked with a, a little fellow there who looked to be in the pink of health. His eyes, he had bright blue eyes, and they were shining, and his complexion was clear, and he was peppy and energetic. And I said to myself, see, I'm in here with a bunch of uh, YMCA physical training experts. They're going to have me drinking goat's milk and stuff like that, and uh, uh, eat cottage cheese and, and be healthy. And I thought back of the old, in the old days, you know, as a tall, skinny kid, and all the kids in my neighborhood were interested in muscles. And so we used to, we rode away to a man named uh, Mr. Atlas, I think his name was. And he gave, he would send you some sort of springs that you exercised with and, and you're supposed to build yourself up. Well, my brother and I did that for some six months and we were tall. At the end of the six months, we were tall, skinny kids. So we felt like writing this guy, who completed your course, please send muscles. But, uh, I, I was suspicious of, of these, uh, these, these fellows, you know. And he asked me my name, so I told him my name was O'Brien. He said, just a minute. He looked around, he introduced me to a fellow named Tennessee. And I said to myself, right away, they put me in the Irish-American division. And uh, this seemed to me a, a, a bad thing. I ought to be with all the alcoholics, you know. And uh, I, I was annoyed about this. All sorts of little things seemed to disturb me. And then they said, well, you're a very fortunate fellow. We've got a closed meeting for beginners. You go to that meeting. And I figured, well, it was there was where they had you subscribe to the goat's milk and all the rest of it. Uh, and uh, I was a little reluctant to go. And the, the fellow said to me, don't be worried about it. No one knows who you are. No one cares who you are. No one wants to know anything about you. So they, we went upstairs to this meeting. The first uh, thing the fellow says to me, what's your name? So I said, this is anonymous. So I said, my name is Louis Carruthers. He was the trial attorney for the Long Island Railroad, and by that time I was working for the Long Island Railroad. So I, I gave him the boss's name. And he, uh, he I was going to have... Uh, have AA explained to me. And the next thing he says to me, what do you think of serenity? 
Well, I was hot off the racetrack. And I was saying to myself, Serenity, where's Serenity running? Never heard of it. And uh, so I, I said, I don't know. I'm, I'm here, a new man. I don't know anything about it. So they, they talked a little bit. They asked other guys questions. Some fellas answered. Uh, I didn't pay attention to the questions and the answers. I just wanted to get out of there. And then as we were leaving, uh, a fellow slid over to me and he said, Are you new? And I said, Yes. And he said, if you have any problems, take them up with the man upstairs. I figured I was in a madhouse. I said to myself, the man upstairs, he's the one who always calls the cops. And it was, it was weeks before I realized that this fellow was talking about God. Well, I, I, I don't go for a lot of this AA jargon. I, I don't talk about the man upstairs. Uh, when I, I talk about God, it's, it's God, and, and, uh, and that's all there is to it. But, you see, my ad- attitude was hostile, and the consequence was that uh, although I attended a lot of meetings and uh, uh, listened, I think, fairly carefully to the speakers, I read the, uh, the book, uh, I didn't get too much out of these meetings because I, I had a closed mind. I was dry for 11 months, and I knew nobody in AA. I didn't speak to anybody. Uh, I, I shunned people, and as soon as the meeting was over, I, I didn't stay for the coffee and cake. I was trying to reduce weight, so I didn't want to eat the cake, and the coffee kept me awake. So I, I beat it right out. And after the uh, 11 months expired, uh, for some reason that I, I don't recall, some great emotional crisis, the kids may have squeezed the toothpaste in the middle, or I broke a shoelace, uh, something of vital importance, I got drunk, and uh, I stayed drunk. And uh, uh, I went to Towns Hospital and uh, was there for seven days. And I, I came under the, not under the influence, that, that's unfair. I, I did meet Dr. Silkworth, and uh, he talked to me. And on very short notice, he, uh, he told me one thing that was wrong with my habit patterns. He says, you'll never get this AA program unless you get rid of some of your arrogance. And I thought to myself, well, this fellow is supposed to know about people. I wish he had said this in a gentler way, but I realized after I had thought about it that this was the only way to treat a hard-headed fellow like me. And then I went to some more meetings, thinking about my intellectual arrogance. And now, unfortunately, I listen to the speakers with a different point of view. I had listened to them at first because I did want to find out what made AA function. And now I listen to them uh, with a critical attitude, trying to find out what was wrong with what they said. And now my period of sobriety was even shorter. In eight weeks, I was drunk again. And uh, I said to my wife that I was very sick. 
I said, I want to go to a hospital. And she said, I think you'd be very foolish to go to a hospital. You've been to the best. You've talked with one of the great men, one of the great friends of AA in Dr. Silkworth. And if you go to a hospital again, you probably will get used to the hospital habit. And so I stayed home. And uh, the doctor did come in and he gave me some, gave me a shot, B1 shot, I guess. And I was in the house for a couple days. And uh, then I went back to meetings. Uh, two fellows came to see me, former members of the Flushing Group. They had started a group in my own neighborhood. And they said that they had watched me and my, uh, their experience showed that I really hadn't participated in AA. I had been a spectator. And they said that what I ought to do was come to the new group, forget about my slips, and try to take an active part in the AA communal life. And so I, I went to this uh, uh, new group. One of these fellows said to me, uh, I want to tell you something. I was receptive. He says, when you come around to Jackson Heights, leave your brains at home. Well, this was not hard to do. I hadn't many left. And uh, so he said, leave your brains at home and do just what I tell you. And so I did just what he told me. He told me a lot of things that were good for me. He told me a lot of things that were very helpful. One of the things he said was, we've got a fella in the coffee detail. You go in and tell him you want to help. So I said, I want to volunteer. I figured, you know, they'd have me write uh, uh, another sentence or two to the serenity prayer or tighten up the 12 steps or something like that. So the fellow said, I'm glad you're here. We can use you. At the end of the meeting, come and see me. So at the end of the meeting, I went back to get the word. He says, take this broom and sweep up. So I took the broom and I swept up. Didn't do too bad a job. And the next week, he says, take the broom. So I swept up the next week. The third week, he said, take the broom. I said, just a minute, my friend. You'll forgive me for this. I said, this is a hell of a job for a lawyer. He says, well, you're a hell of a lawyer. <laughs> and this was true. This is what everybody else had been saying. And so I swept up. But that interested me. I figured this thing out for myself. I said, I've got to find a new fellow. And I will 12-step him, and I will explain the importance of the broom. <laughs> so I got a new fellow. And I didn't use that technique, are you new, take it up with the man upstairs. I just said, you've been drinking too much. I said, do you understand any of the program? He said, no, I don't know anything about it. I said, this broom, sweep up. And then I said, if you have any questions, ask me. So this guy swept up, and I told him I got a new man for the broom. The fellow says, all right, you're in charge of coffee cups. <laughs> Always more responsibility. And then they, they let me buy the cake. First they made me go with a fellow. And then they gave me the money and let me go alone. This was good. This was, uh, they were getting confidence in me, and I was getting confidence in myself. 
Of course, one fellow says, if you don't come back, I'll break your leg. But nonetheless, I felt that they had confidence in me. And then I resolved that whatever they asked me to do in AA, I would do. Whatever they asked me to do in AA, I would do. And they've asked me to do a number of things that I've enjoyed doing. None of it's uh, been unpleasant. Now, when I came into AA, there was a lot of talk about uh, alcoholic thinking. And uh, when these fellows said, leave your brain at home, I did, and they told me something was alcoholic thinking, I was fine. But then I got sober, and I began to think about alcoholic thinking. And uh, uh, this may be heresy, but I concluded that there was no such thing as alcoholic thinking. There is rational thinking, and there is irrational thinking. And the classic example of irrational thinking is, of course, the, the man who killed his father and mother and then threw himself on the mercy of the court on the ground that he was an orphan. Now, I, I, I am not interested in any type of thinking uh, but rational thinking. And I think that that type of thinking comes uh, as, we, as we work in AA and as our, our minds clear up and as we learn again many of the simple facts of life that were uh, taught to us by our parents. Uh, in our own homes. I, I do realize that there is such a thing as a healthy mind and an unhealthy mind. And I realized this more when I read an article by Charles Menninger. And he says the unhealthy mind is characterized by the following thing. An inability to maintain an even temper. And uh, I, I know that that was one of my failings, that I was very apt to uh, become enraged over trifles. Uh, recently, my family was giving me a hard time, as families occasionally are apt to do. And I, I said to my wife and my uh, children, uh, I said, it, it's lucky that I'm, I'm a man of infinite patience. Well, they rolled on the floor with laughter. They thought it was the funniest thing they ever heard. And uh, I, I would hear them on the phone. My wife would say to friends of hers, AA wives, did I tell you what Tom said? He said he was a man of infinite patience. And I could hear the woman at the other end of the phone, short or with laughter. My kids were telling their kids. And then to cap it all, as I left the house one evening, not in a, in a high dudgeon, a low dudgeon, I guess, one of my kids says, well, so long, Mr. Volcano. So I, I figure that no matter how hard you try, you still, at least how hard I try, I still have, have these minor difficulties. Now, the second thing that uh, uh, Menninger says characterizes a, an unhealthy mind is, a, is the inability to maintain an alert intelligence. And when I was uh, drinking around New York, I... I realize now that although I was ready to talk about a lot of things, I really had no intelligence left. The things that I said were childish, stupid things, and the mere fact that I said them uh, showed that I, I should uh, have kept my mouth shut. The third 
thing he says, an unhealthy mind is characterized by an inability to maintain socially desirable conduct. And of course, during the time I was drinking, much of my conduct was not desirable. And finally, an unhealthy mind is characterized by an ability, an inability to maintain a happy disposition. And I was a, an unhappy man. My, uh, my unhappiness increased as my drunkenness increased, of course. Now, I, I feel that I can maintain a, a healthy mind if I remember the things that were told to me uh, in the AA meetings that I attended and I know will be told to me in the AA meetings that I attend in the future. These are things that you know just as well as I do, but I'd like to repeat them to you. I must remember that alcoholism is a disease and that it is a progressive disease. And I know it's progressive from my own past experience. They told me, too, that the progressive nature of the disease was accelerated by personal problems. I know that not only from my own experience, but I know it from observation of uh, men and women who've come into AA uh, since I came in myself. They told me that these personal problems could be solved by the collective wisdom of the AA group. And I am persuaded from experience and observation that there is in an AA group an amount of wisdom which is superior to the sum total of the individual wisdom. Now, I don't suppose my own Elmhurst group is different than any group in Cleveland. Uh, we have in it uh, two types of people. We have some people who are touched with genius. We have other people who are merely touched. And what I try to do, what I try to do is spend my time with the people who are touched with genius. And I find that they can help me solve my personal problems. And I have no compunction about discussing uh, intimate matters with them because I know they are friends of mine. And they told me finally that this disease could not be cured, but that its progress could be arrested. And its progress could be arrested by doing the following simple things. First, by staying away from the first drink. And I had never known that before. I had never realized the importance of the first drink. Then they told me that I should live my life on a 24-hour plan. And it seems to me that if I live my life as though this was my last 24 hours, I'll be a happy and a, an effective human being. They told me I should go to meetings regularly. Uh, there I would find group therapy. I would meet with people who were suffering from the same ailment that I was suffering from and who were faced with the same problems of personality that I was faced with. And they told me that I should study the 12 steps and I should try to follow them in my daily life. And most, of import, most important of all, they told me that I should try to improve my conscious contacts with God. Now, there are three or four things that I, I found this, that what we, we strive for varies from time to time. But as of today, there are three or four things that I'm interested in. I don't know whether they're character defects or what they are, but they're... There are things that I, I, I aim at. There are desiderata, things that I would like to accomplish. And the first of these things is I want to develop a sense of forbearance. 
I was a great one for, uh, for jumping to conclusions. I, I didn't want to wait till all the facts were in, until all the evidence was presented. I made up my mind, uh, with, without having too much information. And let me, let me tell you a story. Let me have a drink of this stuff first. There was a, uh, a a fellow lying in the gutter, and a uh, a crowd gathered. Of course, they, a large, officious woman pushed her way through the crowd, and she said, "This man has fainted." She said, "If you people push back, uh, I'll apply artificial respiration. I've been trained by the Civil Defense Organization, and I know how to bring this fellow around." So the crowd moved, gave her a little elbow room, and she threw herself on this man's back and began moving his arms and legs frantically. And he looked at her over his shoulder. He said, Lady, I don't know what the hell you think you're doing, but I'm just trying to get my hat out of this sewer. <laughs> well, that was me. I was always jumping on people's backs uh, before I knew what they were doing. Now I try to withhold judgment. I want to wait. And we have uh, occasionally here in New York something that disturbs me a lot. Uh, a fellow will come up to another man and he say, he'll say to him, what are you spending so much time with Joe for? Joe is never going to make the program. I, I think that's a horrible thing for anybody to say. Because I don't know about you, but I don't quite know how I ever made the program. And I think it's it's very unbecoming for me to say that so-and-so won't make the program. This is all, I think, in the hands of God. And we don't know what his, what his plan is for any of us. Now, the second thing that I'm interested in is I want to uh, regain my zest for living. I want uh, the spiritual poverty under which I lived for so many years to be terminated. I was a materialistic sort of fellow. I was a cynical man. I knew the price of everything and the value of nothing. But since I've, I've been in AA, I've, I've uh, overcome much of my cynicism, I think. Uh, I'm no longer suspicious of people. I'm no longer resentful, and I, I want to keep it that way. And the, the third thing I want to, uh, that I aim at is I want to discover for myself more fundamental truth. Uh, during the period I was away from the church, uh, I, I believed that truth was a relative thing. And I, I thought there were no fundamentals in life at all. Uh, I know now that that isn't so. Uh, I define uh, uh, fundamental truth as something that I can't help believing. And uh, if AA does nothing else for me, it's sent me back to my church. Uh, two years ago, I made a, a general confession, and I, I am again going to the sacraments of uh, the Catholic Church. And I, I'm, I'm interested in, uh, in finding out what God's will is for me. And the final thing that I'm aiming at is I'm aiming at humility. 
Now, uh, I don't mean when I say humility, uh, self-martyrdom, but I mean the antithesis of arrogance, that arrogance that Dr. Silkworth picked out as my great fault in this very brief talk that we had. Now, one of the early church writers said that a man striving for humility must do three things. He must make a critical self-appraisal, and that, I think, is what we do in the fourth step of the AA program. And then he says a man of humility must refuse to compete for trifles. There is much in modern life that we know now is unimportant, it's cheap, it's tawdry, and we must slough it off. We must return to the simple virtues that were taught us in our homes. And finally, this writer says, a man striving for humility must lose himself in something greater than his own personality. And certainly we can all find that in the various types of 12-step work which are available to us in this uh, AA Brotherhood. Now, I have, as a result of being sober, I have much more leisure than I ever had before in my life. And I try to read every day uh, something in the Bible. And I'm especially impressed with the writings of the prophet Isaiah in the Old Testament. This uh, very learned fellow says, The people who live in darkness have seen a great light. Upon them that live in the valley of the shadow of death, the light does shine. Now, I think we alcoholics and our families are people who lived in darkness. I think a light shines on us now. That light is the AA program, and it comes to us, I firmly believe, through the grace and the goodness of God. Thanks very much.